Some of you know that I have this very special baseball. Others of you don't. I'm going to introduce you to this is a Philadelphia Phillies baseball. That's right. Back in 1994, some of you weren't even born. Uh, see, I grew up only 30 minutes south of Philly, and so I've always rooted for the Philadelphia, like the Eagles. I was waiting for an amen there. Sorry. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, the, the, the Phillies, eh, they, they, when they won the World Series, what was it, back in 07, 08, 09? I can't remember. Uh, they kind of tanked after that. And they're, they're, I'm just letting you know this season, they're on a comeback. They're on a comeback, just so you know. However, in 1994, they were in the World Series, and they played the Toronto Blue Jays. It was three games to two. Bottom, bottom of the ninth, or top of the, yeah, bottom of the ninth, and the bases were loaded, and the Blue Jays hit a grand slam and took the World Series from my beloved Philadelphia Phillies. This, however, I guess if the Philadelphia Phillies won, it would be more worth more, but uh, I'm not too concerned about what it's, I have no idea actually how much it's worth, but it is actually signed by all of the team members of the Philadelphia Phillies of 1994. My niece gave this to me. That was such an awesome, awesome blessing, okay? Uh, she was from close to the Philadelphia uh, area as well. And, you know, I, I've, I've loved baseball since I was a kid. I played in Little League. My brother, Chris, also played in Little League. A number of you have played in Little Leagues. And I want to tell you a story right now his name is Bob. He actually wrote a book that uh, the young guys in the church, I had them read, and it's that God, that God made us as men for work. And he tells a story in which when he was in Little League, he had this tendency, when he swung, he put the ball into right field. Now, if you're a baseball player, you understand that that tends to be a problem. And the coach said, you're swinging too slowly. As a result, you're connecting too late with the ball and sending it into right field. You need to swing faster, and you can connect and send it either into center or left field. And there's generally more power when you do that. So Bob is really trying hard all of this, all season to swing faster, swing faster. And he now his team now plays this, this other team in which they have the fastest pitcher in the league and the most accurate pitcher in the league. And Bob steps up to home plate, and every time he steps up to home plate, he, pull, he puts the ball into left field. And he begins to think about this. How is it that with the fastest pitcher, his swing is faster, and he realized it really had, had nothing to do with how fast his swing was, but the confidence, listen to this, the confidence that he had in the pitcher. Because not only was he the fastest pitcher, he was the most accurate pitcher, and he had no fear of being hit by the ball. And so he would be able to step into it when he needed to, swing early enough, and pound that ball into left field and get on base. Now, what does a baseball story have to do with the sermon that I'm about to preach in 1 Peter? You're going to have to see how this unfolds. So you're there in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 13, and I'm going to read all the way to chapter 2, verse 4. Where is, excuse me, verse 3. Where is this going? I'm going to entitle this message based on the movie Signs. You've seen the movie Signs? You remember that famous phrase, swing away? 
Okay, that's going to be my challenge to you. That is Peter's challenge. It doesn't come to us quite like that. But his challenge to you this morning is going to be swing away. Swing away. I want to see if you notice where that is in this passage. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Church, I am so looking forward to that day. And if I don't get to see that day, I'm so looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face. His grace will be revealed in that day, it says. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy, for I am, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life. Some of you are saying right now, Amen. Amen, because you know the emptiness of the life you once lived apart from Christ, and now he's redeemed you. That empty way of life that was handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe. In God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. But the grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands. How long, church? Forever. Forever. I'm going to be using a lot of baseball stories and analogies this morning. Yep. Forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice. And all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, a week and a half ago, Life Group actually went through the first portion of this, and I was in Cole's group, and Cole, you hit a home run on this right here. Okay, you really did. And Cole explained to our group that I'm going to now just very briefly touch on to explain to you the literal phrase here that we read in the very beginning, um, right after the word, therefore, is the word, gird up the loins of your mind. For most of us, that makes like totally no sense at all. Peter, where are you? Gird up the loins. Of your mind. Really? What? And all I can say is this that he obviously knows an idiom that we do not, and they did not dress in slacks or jeans or shorts the way we do today. They had robes. Even the guys had robes. 
And when you went to fight or when you would need to be in action, such as Elijah, after the duel on Mount Carmel, it says that he girded up his loins, literally. You're not going to find that in the NIV. They're going to put it in our language because that's an idiom. He girded up his loins. In other words, he reached down and grabbed the back part of his robe and pulled it up and stuck it in his belt. And so now there's no hindrances, and he ran. It was somewhere between 20 and almost 20 miles and almost a marathon ahead of Ahab's chariot. Now, there's reason for that I'm not going to get into, but that would be an example of Elijah girding up his loins, as they say. In other words, as the NIV says, be prepared for action. But how are you to be prepared for action? Are you supposed to take out a literal sword, a literal shield? We're ready for battle. I'm going to confess there is that undertone of be battle ready. But he, in essence, is saying be ready in your mind. Now, why is this significant? Because he just spent the first 12 verses talking about this struggle of our faith in the face of suffering. Suffering that's only for a little while, but suffering nevertheless. And it is refining your faith, and we need to continue on because the series that I've entitled going through the, uh, First Peter is a fiery faith. This is all about what God is trying to do in these people's lives, these sojourners, these pilgrims, whatever your version says, strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Asia, Galatia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, etc., in the, this area. And he is speaking to them and saying, you're going through these trials and the suffering, and it's probably during the reign of Nero, in which many Christians, especially in Rome, were put to death. Peter himself eventually crucified upside down at the end of Nero's reign, at the hands of Nero. There was a tremendous amount of suffering. And so Peter needs to encourage them. You need to have a mindset. In view of this suffering and your faith is being refined like gold, and remember, pure gold does not tarnish. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be ready for action. I remember when my brother Chris, he's my younger brother. I'm not sure if you guys have met him or not. Some of you have. Uh, he's a lot bigger than me. Uh, he's about my height, but he, he's got a lot more muscle on his body than I do. He was a baseball player, actually a pitcher. Um, in Little League, he was a pitcher and a catcher. When he moved into high school, he focused on pitching. He could throw an 85, 88-mile-per-hour fastball, which in high school was very good. And he had an excellent curve, and he learned as he moved into college to control it very well. He was scouted out by the New York Mets. Um, and when he was... when, when I now was in college, and he was a senior in high school. He said to me, Mike, let's go down to the park. And, you know, there were two parks. We called the South Park, the North Park. We loved the South Park. It had a huge baseball field. We went there, and he said, let's just throw the ball around, and then I want to pitch to you, and I want you to hit, okay? So, I, I mean, yeah, this was like years and years since I played Little League Baseball. I was, yeah, let's do this. A good time to hang out with my brother, maybe share Christ with him and such. We're throwing the ball around. He gets his arm warmed up, and he says, Mike, grab the bat and step up. I said, all right. Man, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to to show my brother I still got it and I stood up in that batter's box and he threw the ball at me I couldn't believe it so I'm in the batter's box I step back and then the ball goes over the plate 
what? And I said, Chris, I'm serious. The ball was coming right at my head, and it ended up over the plate. So he explained the significance of what a slider was. I got that. But he said, Mike, you're going to have to trust me right now, and you're going to need to stay in the batter's box. Okay. So I'm up there, and he throws the ball at me again. And I'm telling you, it, it felt like it was inches from my head. And so I stepped out of the batter's box, and the ball went over the plate again. And he said, Mike, I'm serious. You're going to have to trust me. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing you curves here. And I said, well, how about if you just throw me a fastball? He said, you really want a fastball? <laughs> I think so. So he threw a fastball, nice and low, right here. I'm up and I hit it out of the park, and it ends up here at my shoulders. He threw the ball so fast, it rose about two feet. And I just thought, how do you do this? No wonder you're such a good pitcher. Um, eventually... He slowed the ball down. Um, I'm not sure if I ever connected with the ball or not, but I, at least I learned to stay in the batter's box and swing away. Um, I want you to understand the analogy where I'm going with this. We serve a God who is the fastest pitcher in the league and has the most accurate pitch that you're ever going to see come across that plate. Now, I am not saying that he is the one throwing these trials at you. I'll word it this way, and this is where the analogy breaks down. But he does permit these for a reason. And my question to you is, can you trust him that the ball is not going to hit you? Can you trust him so much that you swing away? Can you stay in that batter's box? Get, keep your head down and step into the pitch and not away so that when you swing a level swing, you can put it out of the park. See, that's what God wants to do in your life. He's trying to form this. That's why faith is, is, is under trial here. It's being, there's, there's so much fire, but you see, the gold's got to melt in order to bring the dross to the surface. Now, I mentioned two weeks ago, our problem is that when the dross comes to the surface, we don't scoop it off. We look at it and we say, oh my goodness, that's in my life. And we stir it up again. And God is saying, what are you doing? I'm bringing it to the surface. Scoop it off. Let me step into your life and help you with this process. It's a refining process. So Peter, he says, swing away. He says, Gird up the loins of your mind. He says, be prepared for action. With your mind, that means your attitude as you enter into this trial is everything. Are you going to let the trial unnerve you and say, God, where are you? I can't trust you. I can't see you. I don't see your hand moving on my behalf. As a matter of fact, it feels like my life is spinning out of control. And I don't know what to do. Have you forgotten me? Now, we read phrases like this in the book of Psalms, don't we? David says, God, where are you? I'm being overwhelmed here. But David swings away. He prepares his mind for action. Psalm 13 is an example. He says, God, if you don't step in, I am going to die. Now, David would be a good man to be able to say something like that without exaggeration. Saul seeking his life, Absalom seeking his life, his enemies, around nations around him seeking his life. 
we don't hear of any um, plots against his life, but I can guarantee you that there were plenty of those against any king who is succeeding and conquering. There's going to be plots against his life. The truth is, David ends that psalm saying, but I will trust in your unfailing love. Even though he's saying, God, where are you? He eventually comes to this place in which he says, God, I am going to trust in your unfailing love. You will come through for me. And David swung away. Now, the next thing that he says here is he says, be self-controlled. That's what the NIV says, be self-controlled. And probably, I think it's the NASB, it says be self-controlled. But the literal translation here is, are you ready for this? It's be sober. That means don't be intoxicated. Now, I'm not saying that he's not saying don't get drunk, but I think he's getting at something a whole lot deeper than just physically not getting drunk. What happens when you get drunk and you get intoxicated? I mean, I, I have to confess I've never been intoxicated. I've seen it happen. But you start doing stupid stuff, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, you start doing stupid stuff. As a matter of fact, they're so stupid when you wake up in the morning, you don't even remember the stupid stuff you did. You have to ask the people who were there. Then you don't believe them. They got to show you the pictures. Yeah, this is how stupid you were last night, okay? Intoxication makes you do stupid stuff. Intoxication makes you feel your emotions can go out of control. Your actions can go out of control. Let's look at those two things right there. He is, in essence, saying, be sober. Don't let, this first thing, don't let your emotions get the best of you. When I was in the batter's box and I saw that ball coming for my head, I thought my brother was about to take my head off. I was filled with fear and then anger. All right? Fear and then anger. And then humility. Because <laughs> the ball went over the plate. And he challenged me many times, just hang in there, Mike. Stay in the batter's box. Swing away. But the emotions started getting the better of me. And if we're not careful, when you're going through trials and you're doing the best you can to keep the attitude right, if not, then the emotions will get out of control. You're going to start being filled with fear. Finances, oh my goodness. There's too much month. There's too much month at the end of my money. What am I going to do about that? And God is asking you, can you trust me and step into the pitch? You won't get hit. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be sober. Are you angry? I want to ask you that this morning. The, the, the circumstances, the trials you're going through. Actually, if I were to get a poll right now, and you're, I don't want you to raise your hand, but if you did, and I were to ask you how many of you are going through a really difficult situation right now, every single one of us would probably be able to raise their hand about at least one. That is how significant this issue in the book of 1 Peter is to the people of God. Because problems, no matter how strong a leader you are in plan and use contingency plans, and then if they don't work a contingency plan for your contingency plan, you follow me, they, the problems still come up. You cannot avoid them. That is the nature of a broken world that we are a part of. It's going to happen. You are not going through trials by yourself. They are experienced by everyone. Now, some of you 
are experiencing them more intensely with us than others. Those trials are harder, they are deeper, but every one of us is going through this stuff. Every one of us. Deep hurts. How do you deal with betrayal? How do you deal with running out of money before the end of the month and having to trust God? Where's that going to come from? <coughs> Are you filled with anger? Are you filled with disappointment, disillusionment, fear? He goes on and he says, as obedient children, don't be conformed or don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. <clears throat> this is another area of intoxication, if you will, because evil desires can start controls, not just emotions, but evil desires. You can start wondering, wow, I thought I was done with this, these issues of lust or anger that controlled me. Where is this coming from? I'm hearing the little one back here saying, amen, amen. All right. <clears throat> the truth is <clears throat> that I don't care how mature you are in the Lord, the evil desires will always be lurking in the shadows, seeking to rear their ugly head to control you. You've got to be prepared for action. You've got to be sober. Don't be intoxicated with the with the emotions and the desires of this world. <clears throat> I think it's this reason <clears throat> why he uses, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 17, he says, live as strangers here in reverent fear. Some of your versions say, live as aliens. <laughs> I like that. I'm a sci-fi buff. I like that. Live as aliens. Now, actually, he just means your citizenship is not here. It's not. It is in heaven. You are a sojourner. That means you are passing through. Keeping with the baseball analogy, can you imagine if you're on a road trip for a week with your baseball team, <clears throat> four games away, and you see an ad for a car, and you think, man, I'm going to buy a car. You're from Orlando, but you're in L.A., and you want to buy a car, and how are you going to get that, that back to L.A.? And you're, the, the manager says, Mike, what do you think you're doing? If you want to buy a car, fine, wait till you get home, but you're on a road trip here. That cannot be on your agenda. You need to keep your focus and get in the game. But many of us as Christians, we, our mind is on other things. They start wandering in on the things of the world, and we start longing for it before you know it. The more you, you put your mind on some of those old ways, we start longing for them again. And so we step out. Oh, it's just one time. And before you know it, we can get hooked on these things. And, and Peter is saying, uh-uh, you are strangers. Let me tell you a story. Abraham and Lot. Abraham was older than Lot. We don't know how much. Maybe only a few years. But nevertheless, Lot was his nephew. Abraham was given the charge to help him, oversee him, be kind of like a father to him because his dad, Abraham's brother, had passed away. They have moved away from family, and now they're living in Canaan. They start prospering, both of them. They're working together as a team. They're shepherds. They are nomads. That doesn't mean they don't get angry, nomads, right? Yeah, it means that they're sojourners. They are on a road trip. They are 
passing through. They don't live in houses or buildings constructed with hands. They live in tents that you can just suddenly pull up and move on. Having sheep, that was to an advantage because you could move the sheep around large areas and watch over them easily. Abraham and Lot were sojourners. As a matter of fact, Abraham was told by God, I don't want you to camp out here. Well, I don't want you to settle down here. You're not a settler. You're a a sojourner, an alien, if you will. And Abraham complied with that. God said, I'm not giving you the land yet. Because he said it this way, the sins of the Amorites have not reached their full. Now is just not the time. Your children's 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 children, anyway, a few generations down the road, they're going to inherit this land, but not you. You are a sojourner, a pilgrim. You're just passing through. You need to live this way. Eventually, as their flocks got rather large and they began to prosper and grow quite wealthy, there was some conflict between the shepherds of Lot and the shepherds of Abraham. And Abraham said to Lot, look, We've grown in numbers, our families are larger, our our servants are larger, our herds are larger. You look around and you move in whatever direction you want, and I will move in the other. And so Lot chose what he believed to be the best. And as he moved in that direction, you may remember the story, one of the main cities was Sodom. Now it says that he began to settle down. And by chapter 19, when God is ready to destroy Sodom, and he sends two angels to Sodom, guess who has already moved into the city in a permanent building and is a leader amongst the Sodomites, our friend Lot. Now, Peter tells us in 2 Peter that Lot was a righteous man and his spirit was grieved by all the wicked living around him. But my question is, so what did he do about it? Because when he has these guests stay with him, there's a knock on the door and they say, we want you to bring them out because we want to, uh, I'm looking around for the ages here, we want to molest them. And Lot says, I can't have you do that. And then they say, who made you, listen to this, who made you our judge? You know what that tells me? Lot had never brought correction to the people of Sodom. He was grieving his spirit, but you see, Lot had lost his saltiness. His wife certainly didn't. Sorry, bad pun. Okay. His do- he lost his daughters. They were wicked. He lost his wife. By turning around and looking, that is, that's God's way of revealing her heart was back in Sodom. Really? They had lost their saltiness. Why? Because they had allowed evil desires to begin to supplant these desires. I am here and I'm passing through. My life is all about serving God. And for Lot, it became more and more. Though he was a righteous man, though sin still grieved him, he chose to put life in neutral and do nothing about it. And he lost his family. He lost his witness. Who made you our judge? And he moved into Sodom. And he settled. 
And I'm just going to let you know, Peter's challenging us, that you can be like Lot. And you can begin to settle, but you are not a settler. You are a sojourner. You're on a road trip and you're only passing through. Be careful because being ready for action means that you are just passing through. And I am not going to get involved in the wickedness of this world because I have a future hope. And we see that when he talks about this grace that is to be given to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. That is, at his second coming. That's when Jesus will be revealed from heaven. I believe that, let me make sure I'm not going to jump ahead of myself here, excuse me. I believe that there is a grace now that Peter talks about and a grace then. The grace then, of course, is heaven. That's where my citizenship truly is. I am here for my faith to be strengthened. I am here to be able to reflect and glorify Jesus and reflect that glory. I am here to be his mouthpiece and his witness. I am here to live for Jesus, and I am not here to settle in Sodom. That is our call. And when you get that, church, you can swing away. You can trust in the sovereignty of God in the face of trial. You can refuse to be discouraged. When you get discouraged, you know what happens in your life? Life shifts into neutral, doesn't it? You're just, you're tired, you're weary. I don't want to fight. And you give up. And church, I'm going to let you know that if you give up and you shift your life into neutral, you are not just going to be like that sojourner passing through. You're going to get involved and the evil desires will capture your heart and you will settle in Sodom. Don't do that. Keep your eyes focused on that grace that's to be revealed one day, one day. Why should I surrender that day and, and compromise for everything that I can receive in that day by little compromises? Sure, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. We live for then. We're living now for then. We're living now to receive to, for glory to be given to Jesus Christ that will be fully revealed when he comes. We're living for then. But there is a grace now, and I want to talk about that. He uses this term, you have not been redeemed. That, by the way, means purchased, bought. There is a transaction, a monetary transaction, if you will. Whenever you purchase a person, that rings the bell of slavery. Goes back to Exodus 6, in which God redeemed Israel out of Egypt because they were slaves in Egypt. And God purchased them as his slaves. He's the master, we are his slave. And this is a totally different type of slavery that consumed America years ago. This is a benign master of heaven who has called us to be his, I'm going to word it this way, pierced ear slave. That means a slave for life. You're a slave for life because he redeemed you. Now, to stick with the baseball analogy, my friends, every single one of us were playing on the wrong team. It was a bad team. It was a corrupt team. It was a team that cheated. It was a team that lied. It was a team that we just watched the movie 42 last night. 
And one time when he's playing first base and he's reaching out to get the ball, to grab the ball, the guy steps on his angle, and, and I don't know if it breaks it or twists it, whatever it is, but he goes down, he doesn't play the rest of the game. And it becomes clear the guy did this on purpose. See, you're that team. You were. You lived in a, 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 an ignorant lifestyle. You didn't realize, this is just the way we live. This is the way we do life. We cheat, we lie, we steal, we sleep with other people's wives. We, 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 we abuse our children. We speak harshly to them. We, we don't know how to love. We think we do, but we really don't because we're living in ignorance. We're living in, how does he word it here, this empty way of life. Your focus wasn't on the game when you played for that team. You went carousing until 3 o'clock in the morning and did whatever that I can't repeat here on a Sunday morning. That's the way you lived. That was your lifestyle. But along came this manager, and he had his eye on you, and he had chosen you, just like they chose Jackie Robinson. They chose him, and then they went after him to get him on their team. Brought him up from the little leagues into major leagues. He was chosen. You were chosen, and you were brought onto this team. Now, get a load of this. The amount of money that they had to put down for you, and you were not some superstar baseball player playing for the devil's team. You weren't, but God saw you that way, and he set down an amount for this trade that was beyond your understanding. And if you could only know the extent of how much he purchased for you, I, I can guarantee that it was so radically changed the way you lived. So radically changed. I, 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 got, a, I got a T-shirt. Um, like, like this. this uh, uh, an, what do you call this? Help me out here. Polo shirt. There we go. And my wife had gotten it in Pinehurst, North Carolina. And they play PGA tournaments and such up there. It's a retirement area that my wife was visiting her aunt. And he, she purchased this. It's like, well, you've probably seen a guy you know, swinging a golf club. I mean, I played golf like three times in my life. If you want to build and stroke your ego, play me in golf, okay? And, here, and so there's this little emblem of a golf player. And I just thought, oh, cool, golf. You know, it's a $25 shirt and $20 shirt. That's, that's great. I like it. I wore it. And, you know, when you guys, when, when, when you're just doing something around the house and uh, you know you're not going to be working for hours, you just want to check the oil in your car or maybe you see something on the sidewalk and get, your, get out your blower that can leak gas, oil mixture every now and then and you get it going and, and you don't change your outfit. And I would do that with this shirt. And I would check the oil and I would do these other things. And then one day my wife's I, I visited there, and I saw the shop that she bought the shirt at, $100. What? Now, it wasn't my wife that bought the shirt for me. We would have had a talk, but it was her aunt. Okay, that's fine. It was a gift. $100? Are you serious? Because I got this little guy playing golf? Really? I, I was grateful. Don't get me wrong. But I never wore that shirt, checking the oil, cranking up my blower, doing any work around the house, uh-uh. If you came into my house with a dirty hand, stay away from me. I got this shirt on, buddy. All right, don't even think about touching me. But you see, it's because of how valuable that shirt was to me. I treated it very differently. 
when you understand the value that Jesus placed on your life, that he gave the most expensive thing, commodity, monetary transaction ever in all of history that could be given, ever will, was anything like that given. It was his life. It changes the way you think about how valuable you are and how you choose to live your life. Do you remember the, the movie Sandlot? How many of you have ever seen the movie Sandlot? Raise your hand. I just want to know out there. Sandlot. Okay. Awesome movie. Do you remember when they run out of baseballs and his dad had this special baseball? It's just a baseball, you know? It's just a, it's just a baseball sitting on their mantle. And he says, oh, guys, I, I can get a ball. Now, he knew that he wasn't supposed to play it, but... I mean, it's just a baseball, really. So he goes and he grabs the baseball. They start playing, and the ball gets hit out of the park into Hercules' backyard. Forget about going after that ball. And now is the, the, the guy. What's the guy's name? Somebody remember? Smalls. Smalls. Smalls is the guy, and he says, my dad's going to kill me. Dude, what? It's a twenty-nine baseball. What? No, it was a special base. Special? Yeah. I mean, I just thought maybe we could play with it. I didn't think we'd lose it. Well, what was so special? I don't know. It had this guy's name on it, like Ruth or something. And they said, are you serious? Babe Ruth signed that? Yeah, so what's the big? The Babe? The Sultan of Swat? Are you serious? The Great Bambino? Well, yeah. He was like the greatest baseball player ever, and he signed that ball, and you just you let us play with it? Spoiler alert. At the very end, they can't return the baseball with Babe Ruth's name on it. Instead, he gets a baseball signed by the entire Yankees team with Babe Ruth's name on it that won the World Series that year. So, I will never take this ball out to the baseball field and play with it. I would never do that. It's too precious. And yet church, Peter is saying, then why do you choose to go back to those evil desires? Do you not realize the precious commodity by which or through which you were purchased for his glory? And you want to live this way? Yeah, there's something wrong here. Church, this is how we're to prepare our minds. This is how we are to have confidence in who we are and who Jesus is so that we can swing away. As we go through life, not to pull back in fear and be controlled by our emotions and by our evil desires, but to step up with confidence. I am the MVP. As a matter of fact, we are all. MVPs. I don't mean to sound too corny with that one, but truly, the, the, the value that he has placed on you, it's all the same, by the way, inestimable. I will never wear that special shirt to change oil or even check the dipstick in any of my vehicles. I won't do it. I will never throw this ball in my life. It's going to sit on the shelf, and I'm just going to look at it. It's too valuable. You are too valuable. You have been redeemed. You've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, 
who has called you, as he says in the next chapter, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light to declare the praises of, uh, to declare his praises. That's how precious you are. I need to move on because I'm preaching two sermons in one and I've got 10 minutes and I want to cover this last step. So he says, you guys have been doing great. You have obeyed the truth and by doing that, you're, you're getting rid of the junk in your life. You're pursuing Jesus and you have built this Philadelphia love, this what they call brotherly love. Philadelphia love, you know, as in Philadelphia Phillies love, okay? I'm not saying that the Phillies know how to love. Philadelphia, brotherly love. You built this into your life. You know what brotherly, you know what Philadelphia is? You know what brotherly love is? Brotherly love is kindness. It's being cordial. It's being nice. It's putting up with one another. It's choosing, you know what? I am not going to get irritated with this person, but boy, do they irritate me. I'm going to be kind, and I'm going to be cordial with them, and I'm going to control my talk, and I'm going to love them. I'm going to express brotherly kindness to them, and I'm going to forgive, and I'm going to, this, I'm, I'm going to be nice to them. And he says, that's great. This is the way you're living. You're learning to get along with one another. You're, you're not saying to one another, you know, you just really irritate me. You know, that used to be in your vocabulary. It's not anymore. You're actually praying for each other. You're getting along so you can go along. This word sincere, sincere love, sincere Philadelphia, this word literally means, and we get our word hypocritical or not hypocritical. That's exactly what it means. Literally, not hypocritical. It's genuine. It's real. You're not putting on a, a mask, a facade, some veneer. You truly are getting it. <laughs> awesome. You know, any baseball team that doesn't know how to get along, they're just never going to do well. There has to be a cohesiveness. There has to be that desire regardless of skin color or regardless of, of quirks or regardless of what you choose. We're going to get along and I am going to work with you and I'm going to refuse to be irritated by you and we may rub each other wrongly at times, but we're going to make it and we're going to play well together because our focus is not on each other and how much we think each other needs to grow. Ever think, boy, does he need to grow. We learn to stay focused and, and keep, our, keep our mind in the game. And that's how teams win. They, they become cohesive. They almost can read each other's minds and how they play together. Very important. But he goes on and says, great job. You've, you've added this, you've built this Philadelphia, this brotherly love, sincere, unfeigned, true, genuine love. That's awesome. Now add to that agape. That's the next word that we encounter here. Add to that agape. Agape is the sacrificial type of love. It's the covenantal type of love that God has for us. It goes beyond the um, emotions, feelings, whether you're irritable or not, and, and it's sacrificial. The next word in describing it deeply, love each other deeply, that word literally means stretched you might remember it this way. Jesus' arms were stretched out sacrificially. That's agape for us. Stretched out means 
it will move you out of your comfort zone. You're going to love this way, beyond Philadelphia, and truly love with agape, it's going to move you out of your comfort zone. It's translated intensely, fervently, um, earnestly. The bottom line, church, is that it's going to cost you something. This type of love, it doesn't, it doesn't just say, hey, we're going to learn. We're just going to have to learn to get along, all right? It says, you know what? I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to, it's going to cost me something. You know, when you're playing on the baseball team, sometimes the coach does this, and he's not wiping the, he's not putting on any kind of, you know, insect repellent or anything. He's telling you, I want you to bunt. Okay. But for you to bunt means you're going to get thrown out at first, at first base. But you do it because the guy on base, your teammate, is going to advance a base. And so you sacrifice. Or he says, you know, like this or whatever, swing away, put the ball up in the air, far, far right field, because the guy on third base is going to tag up and go home. I need you to try and put it up there as high and as deep as you can. If you hit a home run, great, but they'll probably catch it. As soon as he does, that guy's going to run. And he's the fastest guy on our team. He'll probably make it, and we're going to score. But you're going to have to get out. Can you do that? Can you sacrifice? Let me tell you, that sounds like a simple sacrifice. Let me tell you something that might be a little bit harder. You're at work. You've been there 15 years. You're up for a promotion. Another guy's been there five years. He's up for the promotion too. You trained this guy. You know more than this guy. You perform better than this guy. In all, every angle you look at it, you are going to be the one to get the promotion. Guess who doesn't get it? You don't. The other guy does. And here's the catch. He's a Christian. He goes to your church. Your friends. You have Philadelphia with this guy. He just got the promotion. You're wondering, ah, yeah, he probably took the boss out to dinner. He greased the wheel somehow. There's a little bit of politics going on. And you entertain these thoughts and you say, you know what? No, no, no. I'm, I am not going to go there. And the boss felt that he was the preferred hire, the guy to get the promotion, not me. And I'm going to deal with that. And you deal with it. And it doesn't irritate you anymore. And you actually get to this place in which you rejoice in his promotion. Have you ever been in a situation like that where God had to bring you to that place of rejoicing in someone's success that you didn't get? But it doesn't stop there. One day, he crashes his car. To get this car repaired is going to cost $2,000, and it's going to empty him. And now, he does not know how he's going to put food on his table to provide for his family. And the first thought in your mind is this. Maybe he deserves it. Mm. He makes more money than I do. Why should I help him? And yet the Spirit of God begins to probe your heart more and more and more and brings you to this place of humbleness before God and willingness to be stretched 
out and sacrificially love to love deeply from the heart and you give him a $500 gift. The guy who got your promotion makes more money than you, but right now he's a brother in the Lord and he needs financial help. And you're thinking, I'm taking food from my table. I may barely able to do that. And God, you're saying 500 and he's convinced, okay, yes, God. You've dealt with my heart, and I am going to do this. And you put, you, you put $500 of cash in his hand. And you sacrifice, and you say, okay, God, that's really stretching. I believe that you can still provide for my family. But wow, I was not expecting to do that. But you do it anyway. That is agape love. That is loving deeply from the heart. That is, as Peter says in the very next letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, add to your Philadelphia agape. This is really important. He says it twice, once in his first letter, another in his second. This is important. Add to your Philadelphia. You don't stop at smiling at each other and hugging and not getting irritated with each other. You know, maybe your praise report recently has been, thank you, Lord, I don't get irritated at my spouse anymore. Well, now add to your Philadelphia that not being, not getting irritatedness, that now sacrifice, go beyond and give to the point where it hurts. You see, that is the type of sacrifice that we need. And you can do it because, as he says here, there has been a seed planted in your heart. It's called the word of God, the gospel, the truth. And you embrace that truth, and it just totally transformed you. Totally transformed you. Paul, excuse me, Peter uses the term born again. He used it in, in the very beginning of chapter 1. Remember that? You've been born again. Uh, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, this seed that's been planted, this imperishable seed, the word of God that lives and endures forever, it's been planted in your heart. And Jesus said, truth will set you free. Now, he didn't mean if you stop lying and tell the truth, that will set you free. That's, that's how Hollywood quotes it. That's not what he, Jesus was getting at. This truth, this powerful truth, as it's planted like a seed in your heart, it begins to grow in you and transform the way you think and the way you speak and the way you act. He says, but Peter says, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, chapter 2, verse 1, look there. He says, but be careful, there's weeds. He says, this seed has been planted in your heart and it's springing up and you, it made you new again. You're a different person. You're born again. The old nature put to death, the new nature come to life by the Spirit of God in you through his word and it's transforming you. And he says, now you need to get rid of these weeds. What are some of these weeds? I don't have time to really get into it. Um, but he says, get rid of malice. If you're not forgiving... And Jesus says, you need to forgive 70 times 7. That means like never stop forgiving. Always forgive. That means cancel the debt. You owe me nothing. That's what true forgiveness is. It's being able to say, you owe me nothing. Nothing. I'm not going to hold this over your head. I'm not going to seek revenge. No, totally forgiving. You know what that does? It preempts possibilities of anger. The reason why he says careful of this malice is because there's probably unforgiveness getting in there. And you got to forgive. Pull that weed. 
Don't let that malice spring up. It's going to not just affect your Philadelphia. You will not be able to add to Philadelphia agape. So get rid of it. Get rid of the deceit. That word deceit is literally in the Greek decoy or bait. When people, when they look at your life, they, wow, like a fish looking at a worm. My and I am in love. I Wonderful. But there is something hidden underneath that bait. And so he, it basically this deceit is this pretense. We look like we are so madly in love with Jesus, and yet there is so much corruption in our heart that hurts people. We gossip and we slander. And Peter is saying, that's a weed. You got to pull those weeds. Get rid of the hypocrisy. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this. He says, not only did the word of God birth something in you so that you can do this, so that you can add to Philadelphia agape, so that you, because you are so in love with Jesus, you can swing away. He says, that same word is what you need to crave. Because guess what the word is all about, church? It is all about this great God that loved us so much that he chose to redeem us and purchase you from the other team to be on his team. He it's, it's about Jesus. That is the very focal point of the word. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the truth. If you want to really grow, if you want to be producing fruit from this imperishable seed planted in your life that's made you born again, if you want to produce all of this good fruit, careful of the weeds, pull them, but fall in love with Jesus, passionately crave the word because it's all about him. You see, what it really boils down to, church, for us in going through these trials and keeping our focus on him, and when the trials come, not stepping out of the batter's box, but be able to swing away, it is going to require you to so trust in God and so love him that your entire life is consumed by this single passion. The only thing a baby thinks about, I don't even think, wait, yeah, when it it craves the milk, and you got to change his diaper later, but he doesn't have to think about that. He's got one goal in mind. I'm just hungry. I will cry for it. I will do whatever I got to do to communicate to you, Mom, that I want milk. And so this just craving, his life is about that. Is your life all about Jesus? You're going to go through trial. And so trust in him. Your life needs to be consumed, craving the truth that is all about Jesus. Taste and see, my friends, that he is good. And when you do and you experience it, you fall deeper and deeper in love with him. And you will be able to go through every trial, every difficulty, every time someone slanders you or gossips about you and then claims to be a Christian, and that happens, church. You're able to swing away. You're able to, with confidence, faith refined, to keep pressing in.
not caught up in the stuff of this world. Can you stand with me? I really don't know how much this baseball is worth. I don't care. It has more intrinsic worth to me because I love the Philadelphia Phillies and my niece gave it to me. It is very valuable. You, my friend, are so valuable to your Savior, to Jesus. He purchased you with a great price. Let's live for him. Father, I pray for every single one of us gathered here this morning. I just ask you, Lord, that you would seal these words of truth in their hearts and that, God, that we would purpose in our life to be sojourners focused on you, Jesus, falling in love with you, pursuing you, uh, craving you, God, that that desire in itself would consume us, Lord. Thank you that you are so faithful. Regardless of what trial or difficulty we go through, you are so perfectly accurate. Father, would you comfort our heart with these words? Would you embolden our heart with these words to live radically for you, Jesus? In Christ's name we pray.